Welcome to another edition of the Metaverse Podcast with your host Tom Traplin. This is session number 36. The Maniverse Podcast is supported by listeners like you. You should totally become a patron of the show and go to patreon.com forward slash Podcast. If you like what I'm doing here, become a patron and show me some love. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Maniverse Podcast. This is the show where I bring on games to entrepreneurs and people in the games business to give you the inside scoop on what it takes to run a successful LGS. Today's show features Jay Mason Grant and Black Knight Games in Hamilton, Ontario. Jay has an interesting origin story for how he got into the business. And yet, the path he took is often overlooked by those who want to build their own LGS. Jay has a lot to share, and there are a lot of great insights into running an LGS in this episode, so it wouldn't hurt to take notes, you know. Without any further delay, let me introduce Jay Mason Grant. Um, Hi, my name's Jay Mason Grant, and I own Black Knight Games in Hamilton, Ontario. We've been open here for almost, um, almost nine years, although we switched locations a couple of years ago to a bigger, better space um, in the same plaza, though, so that was a pretty nice and easy move for us. Uh, I began in the business um, before that. I worked for Games Workshop for five or six years. Uh, I worked everywhere from part-time. I became a manager at one point, uh, and then at some point I kind of realized that I, I wanted to stay in the game business, and, and I decided that the way to do that was to open my own shop. So I, I did everything I could within the company to learn everything I could. Um, I traveled around a little bit and uh, checked out a whole bunch of other stores and planning and, and uh, decided ultimately to, to decide uh, that we'd open up here in Hamilton. And it's, uh, it's, it's been great ever since. Interesting. So how did you get hired at Games Workshop? Um, well, I, I've been playing Warhammer since I was like 10, although I played Magic a little bit before that even. Um, and I, I was always been a gamer. Uh, when I first moved to Ottawa, which is where I worked at Games Workshop, uh, it was for university. So I went to the University of Ottawa to take history, and the only reason I was doing that was because I felt that when I was done high school, that was the thing you were supposed to do. I didn't really mm-hmm. have a plan. Um, you know, I, I liked history, so I chose that, but I didn't really have any any sort of job expectation you know, after that, I think a lot of people find themselves in the same situation. Um, and while I was there, I just happened um, to to get an apartment right next to the mall where the Games Workshop was, which I found pretty convenient. And uh, so I ended up, you know, going there quite a bit. And uh, eventually, um, uh, they had an opening, and I decided I could use a part-time job. So so I applied for it, and uh, and I got it. And then I just worked part-time at that Games Workshop for a couple of years until. Sort of one day coming back from university, it was like a long day. Uh, I was late, I was on the bus, and I was just tired. And I was thinking to myself, that what am I even doing here? I don't really, you know, I enjoy history, but I didn't really enjoy what I was doing. I didn't really have any plan. And I thought to myself, I kind of wish I could open a game store. You know, I, I, always, I always wanted to. I think, a lot of, I think a lot of gamers think that, you know, but we always just sort of think it's some fanciful, goofy thought, and we just dismiss it. And the one time that I'm thinking this on, on the way home on the bus, I, I sort of think to myself, well, wait a minute, why do I, why am I just dismissing that? Why do I think that's just a silly idea? People own game stores, they exist, you know, game store owners are actual things. Yeah. Uh, so, so why do I think that's just sort of some, some weird pie in the sky idea? Um, and as soon as I kind of came to the realization that, wait a minute, that actually is something I could do. I never went back. I, I decided right then and there that that would be what I wanted to do. And, and at every opportunity at Games Workshop, I tried to get more uh, more hours and stuff until eventually I was um, I was a manager. Um, and 
and it was always the plan from that from that point onwards to just kind of learn as much as I could within the industry and then eventually strike out and and do my own thing. Okay, how much experience carried on or carried out from Games Workshop to what you're doing now? Like, how vital I, would you say it was? So I, I think that Games Workshop really prepared me as a salesman. Um, mm. So I, you know, I. I think some people, when they go to Games Workshop, sometimes feel a little bit uh, pressured by the staff or things like that. And, that. and that's actually because Games Workshop has a very involved training process. And some people early on don't really take to that process very well. And and so them trying to kind of go through this these program, you know, th these steps that Games Workshop suggests sounds awkward or pushy to some people when they first walk into the shop. But once you've kind of gotten used to to the idea. Their, their training is actually quite good. They, they end up being very, uh, very good at teaching you how to interact with people, how to ask the right kinds of questions and engage in a way that's, you know, friendly and conversational without it feeling too awkward or pushy or salesman-y. And, and so that kind of stuff translated really well, I think. Um, and then I did have some management experience with them, but there were some things that, that didn't translate at all. I mean, when you, when you manage a games workshop store, you are managing staff, so that's a part of it. And you're, you're obviously working with customers and things like that, but you don't do really any of the admin stuff. It's a big company. They've got accountants and they've got, mm -hmm. you know, higher up people than you and and stuff like that. And, um, you know, they uh, they cover most of that kind of stuff themselves. So so is, you know, prepared me halfway, I think. Yeah, it doesn't give you the whole picture. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. None of the back end uh, fun, the really fun stuff. That's what it uh, leaves out. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's talk about Black Knight Games. Sure. So. So we opened in 2007. Um, I had been working at Games Workshop in Ottawa, but but obviously working towards this. And we decided uh, after a while that Hamilton was a place that worked for my wife and I. We're, I'm originally from London, Ontario, so we okay. wanted to move back closer than Ottawa was. Uh, but it didn't have to be right in London. So I was exploring options in and around the area, looking at things like population density and what stores already existed and uh, and things like that. And Hamilton ended up at the top of the list. It's, it's a fairly big city. It's close to a lot of stuff. It's only an hour and a bit from London, and it uh, it definitely didn't have a ton of game stores compared to other other areas. You you go to London at the time had like five or six game stores, and Toronto had a million, and mm -hmm. uh, you know even Burlington had quite a few um, game shops and things like that. But Hamilton only had a couple, so it felt like like a good option. We we sort of liked the idea, and ultimately we ended up uh, moving to Hamilton. I switched to work at the Games Workshop store in Burlington for a year, just kind of while I did some preliminary stuff, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, started doing things like scouting locations and stuff like that. So you still worked at Games Workshop while you were transitioning to owning your own store? Yeah, I did for 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 a year, for one year in Burlington, um, just you know as as the the way to kind of keep keep going with everything. While I, I, f I figured I didn't want to rush it, I didn't want to just kind of dive in. I had to think of a lot of stuff to do, like, uh, and I didn't want that to strain that process looking for a location or, or trying to, to get the funding together and all that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't want that to feel rushed because I didn't have a job. Right. So I had to, mm -hmm. I had to have, have work while I was doing that so that the time wasn't really a pressure. It's a good idea. I like it. Yeah. So, uh, and then, sorry, go, go ahead. So, so at that point we, uh, we ended up, um, picking the mountain as our, as our location. I felt like it was, uh, you know, a nice enough area of town, um, found a location on the corner of two main streets. And a big part of the location for us was was size, but was also being prominent. I found a lot of game stores end up being in kind of harder to find places. So I, I wanted to be able to try and get at least a little bit of visual traffic um, from, from the street. And then also a really big part of it was that we were near 
the freeway, so people coming from out of town or further away could easily get us. And we also were on two major bus lines, uh, so that the guys coming from, you know, the the, the university or wherever would would be able to find us. So that was a lot of went into the planning of the location. Um, was trying to find that kind of spot, and and once we found that, we you know started all the work of 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 looking into suppliers and and all that kind of thing. How long did it take to find your premium location? Um, I think we started looking in about like really started looking in, in maybe November and we eventually moved in, uh, in June. So it took, took a while. Mm-hmm. Um, probably we had it decided, I think in May. So, so seriously, probably a couple months though of a really, really good looking, but, uh, more like six months of, of sort of casual looking finally, then we started looking for real and found it. Uh, and there were a few good locations. The, the really premium spots obviously were really expensive and, and, when you're starting off in, in a store uh, with a store, you don't really have a really strong idea of what the costs actually would end up being. So I ended up being as, as cautious as I could be. I felt like that was prudent, and and I probably wasn't even cautious enough. Like I, that's something I would definitely recommend people that are are looking to start their own shops, whether it's a game store or other, something else. Is just you know be as cautious with your money as possible because there's there's this moment where you get all your funding and you get uh your loan and whatever you do to get the money and all of a sudden you just have all this money in your bank account and and you're thinking to yourself oh this is gonna be amazing but you know and you just feel like you can just spend 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 and you gotta do everything the right way but man you you really need to be cautious so we i didn't want to get something that was too expensive although our rent still ended up being quite high um and uh yeah try to try to keep almost half the money away um to kind of cover the first year because we knew we wouldn't be making money right at first. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely want to talk about the uh, the the loan, basically, like or how you funded the the whole thing in the first place. But yeah, like what you were saying, the the, the fact that you want to be a little conservative is uh, yeah. is interesting. Because yeah, you you do get all this money, right? You oh, you this couldn't be uh, this will be awesome, and then you can pull through it so quickly, and you're not making any money at the time until your shop's really running, right? And you and even then, before you open, you don't know how much you're going to make. Right. And I mean, I'd taken a few business courses and things like that in preparation, but nothing really prepares you for opening your own business. There's actually, mm. you know, the best thing you could probably do is find an actual mentor that has had a business, even if it's not in the exact same field. Like that, I honestly wish I'd had that because in retrospect, a lot of really simple, basic things uh, were, were difficult in that first year because I didn't really know. Right. So um, things like when you first, you know, rent a place, they expect a fairly large down payment, you know, down for your lease. When you move into an apartment, they ask you for like, you know, 600 bucks or something as a, as a down payment just to cover any damage you might do or things like that. When you move into a store, they could ask you for thousands and thousands of dollars right up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, things like that, things like not really knowing how to schedule your tax, you know, return. You're collecting all this money as HST. And, and eventually at the end of the year, the government's like, all right, give us that money. And, and if, unless you're really planning for it, that's something that that you might mess up at the start. So yeah. that that was that was definitely part of it. Um, but as far as uh, you're asking about about the money and how we kind of got started, I mm-hmm. ended up getting a loan, um, a bank loan, uh, and that wasn't for for a ton of it. I also had some family a family loan from my grandfather, who um, we had to go through a long process of of you know a schedule scheduling the payments back and, and he wanted to really see a really strong business plan and it was smart because without his kind of urging I probably wouldn't have done some of the things that I ended up doing that helped me prepare a bit um, 
so so but in order to to secure a family loan it really depends obviously your your family and stuff with him he was very supportive of, of small businesses so he was extremely eager to help me out with with a small business but he he made sure that i knew what i was talking about before he gave me a cent um so i really had to put together a big plan and really think of a lot of stuff and just have everything on paper before before that happened so and nice. even then I, I still had to pay it back and um yeah so nice it's kind of like you did have a mentor in some ways. I mean, yeah, in some ways, that's true. That's true. I mean, he he was always he was a businessman himself, so so he definitely valued that. He's he's American, and he's like a you know right wing conservative type Republican kind of guy, and so he's he's all about the small business up from your bootstraps kind of mentality, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't exactly my personal you know thing, but for sure for sure he was he's very much you know focused on on the business side of things, and he he loves to see businesses start from nothing and succeed. So so it was pretty easy to get him to to be interested in helping me out, but it was a lot of work to actually, you know, meet his standards. Well, uh, hopefully it paid off though, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So how difficult was it to secure the loan? Like, what was that process like? Um, I mean, with with my grandfather, it was uh, it was a matter of just talking to him about it and and um, you know, presenting a, a plan and, and talking about exactly what I would spend the money on and how much money I would keep for for different reasons and showing that I had an idea of of exactly how I was going to use the money and, and, and that kind of thing. So, um, for, for, for that, it was, it was mostly putting stuff down on paper. A lot of it was guesswork, but you know, it's, it's doing as, as, as well as you can. And I definitely recommend anybody, even if you don't need to do that for a loan that you, you kind of get that stuff down anyway. Um, for the bank loan, it was, it was not too difficult. I'd been with that bank for, for a long time and I wasn't really taking that much money from them. So, uh, that was really more of a matter of, of, you know, just just going and applying at the bank. Oh, okay, easy stuff. Just you've got the cash, and they're like, "Yeah, we'll give you a little bit more. No problem." Yeah, I mean, it, you structure the loan a certain way, and and uh, it, it was a seven year loan, I think, something like that. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't significant. Okay. So what were the uh, first days like when you first um, opened up? What was it? Uh, <clears throat> what was it like? Well, one thing that I definitely did wrong right off the bat was mm-hmm. I, I'd been working at Games Workshop for so long. I just kind of did that system right and okay. games workshop is obviously a bigger company they have mall locations they need a little bit more staff so i had probably more staff hours going than i should have so i'd, I'd hired a couple of people guys that i knew guys that I, I i trusted um but overall i probably hired too many people right off the bat and and so one of the things was we, we had you know two people working on a on a wednesday afternoon and that's just pretty silly uh <laughs> but that's that was the games workshop model right that's how we did it we starting at noon we'd have a couple people on and that was just how it was so so that was sort of a, one of the problems. But as far as the first days went, it uh, you know went pretty well. I think uh, we were able to get our name out there all right. I mean, things like Facebook and that weren't weren't as big at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we had made a website and and uh, you know we we'd, we'd done some of that kind of stuff. Um, but we didn't do a ton of advertising or anything right off the bat. Um, although I wish I wish we had. Uh, but our, our prominent location was was helpful, and then. Um, and then we also I had a good relationship obviously with with the people at Games Workshop in Burlington. So they they told people from Hamilton um, that there was a new shop opening that sold Warhammer and things like that. And so that helped. Um, and it also helped that Hamilton has a really strong um, and and mobile magic community. So it didn't take them long to to see that there was a new shop and to try us out. And you know w- with gamers, word spreads quickly when there's a new game store around. So. Um, so yeah, we, we caught on, I think pretty quick, but, uh, it was definitely slower going at the very beginning than, than it is now. And, uh, it was a good thing that I had a little bit extra money lying around to, to help cover that. Of course. Of course. Your first year is always going to be 
a little bit slower than your second year, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Hopefully for sure. that's and the trajectory you hit, anyways. That's the hope, yeah, for sure. So when you opened, what was the uh, what was the uh, product line layout? Like, how much did you start out with? Um, so we probably spent about. Uh, I think we probably spent about fifty thousand in inventory at the very beginning. Um, a lot of that was was miniature games because that was my specialty at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also did Magic because because I've been playing that since I was a kid as well. Um, so it was largely Games Workshop. Obviously, having worked at Games Workshop, I was still, you know, my 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 chip was still working. I was still still definitely very much a fanboy. And uh, so we sold a lot of Warhammer um, and Warhammer Forty Thousand and Lord of the Rings. We also brought in Flames of War, which is a, a World War Two miniatures game that was fairly popular at the time. At at that moment, though, there weren't very many miniatures games. It's not like now. Like there weren't there wasn't Infinity and War Machine and stuff. That were that were very big at all. So, you know, Games Workshop was kind of it yeah. at the time when it came to miniature gaming, um, and Flames of War was also there as sort of this historical alternative. So we carried that. Uh, we carried a lot of board games right from the beginning. Um, one thing we tried at the very beginning that um, didn't quite ever catch on for us, and that one day I'd like to kind of get going again was was more sort of the family kid side of things. Um, okay. I thought I wanted my shop to be for everybody, so I had like a kids section and stuff like that, and that just didn't actually catch on very well um turns out unless you're really offering something special in that department you know people would rather just go to toys r us moms would or, or whatever then so so there are shops that do offer great kids places or kids stuff if you look at you know the dragon in in guelph or some places like that mm-hmm. they do a really good job of appealing to that of course she's in a mall um and and so that's a little easier to grab moms and things like that but there are things we could do one day to try and be better in that department but at the beginning we were trying that out we had a kids section um but mostly board games miniature games and uh and magic we we carried Yu-Gi-Oh and Pokemon but it was mostly magic from the beginning as far as cards go okay so kind of following your expertise just yeah exactly start off there and then see how it goes that's the way to go i think you 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 want to make sure that that the staff are excited and know about what you're selling. So, you know, if you focus on those things and the staff are experts on, on what you sell, then, then that's helpful. So me being an expert in those games was, you know, where we began. Okay. No, that's a, that's a great way to get started. Yeah. And then we also had a fairly good gaming space. Our, our store mm-hmm. um, was 2000 square feet at the time, which is still pretty big for, for most stores. Uh, the new locations bigger. We're at 3,600 square feet. Um, but we had uh, 10 gaming tables. Um, so that was a- always a plan from the beginning was to have that gaming space. And nowadays that's just very commonplace. I think most game stores realize that's the way to go. And that's become quite um, special. But eight years ago, it wasn't as common to, to do that with game stores. So uh, right from the end, that right from the beginning, that was our plan was to make sure that we ran lots of events and supported the games in store as well as on you know through sales mm-hmm. yeah that's a uh, quite a debate actually yeah i mean i i could see why people would would feel that dedicating a huge amount of your space to to gaming um you know to just open gaming is is difficult i mean for, for us we we have a bigger gaming space than a lot of stores have to sales space. And so if, if you look at that, if you think about how many thousands of dollars I spend just in rent on that amount of extra space just for gaming, it's a lot. And so the question of whether or not that space more than pays for itself is, is definitely a hard one to answer because obviously it doesn't directly pay for itself. Um, you know, events don't make so much money that they cover that space. But the mm-hmm. idea of having the people excited about the games, finding opponents to play, seeing new armies done or just walking through the shop one day and seeing some guys playing a game they've never even seen and that catching on with the customer i feel like there's enough going on there that that we generate gamers through that space and those gamers then spend their money with us while they're here so um i think that it's it's the right way i I feel like that seems to be 
becoming the consensus that seems to be more and more the the way people are going and i think that sort of it, it proves it a little bit i would say so too my personal opinion is that the game space does pay for itself you know because be it is a catalyst for accelerated sales for everything else that you're doing yep i think that's kind of how it, i think it uh, makes up for what the space could be if it were just retail shelves and stuff absolutely so i think that's the way that most game stores should set up but, uh, I think so. I think so too. But I mean, I can see why people would be anxious about it. I, I mean, I don't really have a very easy way to prove myself other than than just you know anecdotal experience type type stuff. You know, it's it's hard to tie mm-hmm. one I, guy walking in one day, seeing a game, thinking it's cool, coming back a week later and buying something to to the actual sale. It's it's hard to to prove that that works. It's hard to prove that a guy plays in a tournament, gets more excited, and ends up spending more money in the long run. I mean, I, I feel like it's obvious, but it, it doesn't yeah. really. Yeah, it's a very indirect know. relationship. Right. And the only yeah. way to really prove it would be parallel dimensions, where right. one shop is one way and one shop is the other way, everything else identical. But, you know, even if you compared your shop to another store that was of similar size but didn't have the game space, it wouldn't really make sense because the community is different, the customers are different. You know, just right. you can't – it's unprovable almost. It's just feeling, it's, basically. But, yeah, and, you know, then the general consensus of – how many uh, game stores saying, yes, this is the way to go. So, And the game stores that do very well seem to have embraced that for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are obviously examples of big game stores that don't have big gaming spaces, but I, I do feel like that ends up being pretty important. Now, how much of your space you dedicate to gaming? That's mm-hmm. that's maybe another question. And, uh, and one that I think each store has to sort of figure out on their own. So how did you decide on 10 gaming tables? Why uh, was that your number? It was just the the way the space worked. I wanted to get as much space as possible. Um, being a miniature guy, I, I wanted the tables to be at least six feet long because a Warhammer game plays well on a six foot table, six foot by four foot. Mm-hmm. So uh, we created tabletops that could sit on top of the the six foot long you know card game tables, and then we could convert them over to to the you know to the uh, magic card tables or for board games or whatever and um so it was just more what's fit in the space i you know we, we looked at the space we thought of how much room we needed to, to put our our store um merchandise out and then kind of the, the the amount of space that that worked for that back there we wanted to make sure we left a little bit of room too in, in the store because we knew that that our initial inventory would grow at least we hoped so and it did mm-hmm. so uh it was it was good that we left some space there because bit by bit our floor became more crowded with with more displays and things like that so um so if we'd gone too heavily into the gaming space right from the beginning then we might not have had room to really do that that sort of growth and you don't want to take away from a gaming space necessarily once it's there it feels like a step backwards so it, it mm-hmm. felt like nice T- 10 tables is that's 20 players in a tournament um that feels like a decent sorry for a wargaming tournament uh, for magic 10 tables you're talking like a 40 person tournament which which all of that felt like about the right size so that was a, a good place to be in for hamilton and the population just the way it worked out yeah and I, I feel like a lot of that was luck too i mean we looked at a bunch of places i found what felt like a good spot i do feel like it ended up working out really well for us and and a lot of that i think is just because we lucked into having some pretty decent landlords it turned out that um you know the location I picked did did end up attracting a lot of people, and and it was a nice area of town. And the there was a development that was growing not too far away, and it continues to grow. So, all of that uh, worked out all right. Some of it was luck, some of it was was planning, and uh, and overall, I'm pretty pleased with where, where we ended up. Great, that's that's pretty much what you want to hear. Eight months in, yeah. pretty pleased. Yeah, for sure. All right, so uh, you mentioned a mistake you made early on with the yeah. the kids stuff. Sure. What's the what is the biggest mistake that you feel like you've made in the business that you've overcome? 
Um, probably, well, there's been a couple. Um, I would say my two biggest mistakes were, were both involving money and planning. And I think that's one of the hardest things for game stores. Because uh, a lot of people that get into game stores aren't really business people first. They're more gamers first. And mm-hmm. I was definitely one of them. I was, I was the gamer first. I worked in, in the gaming business for quite some time. But I wasn't like a business graduate that had all this, this sort of background. Um, and that's definitely a, a tricky place for, for a lot of us um, to be. So right at the beginning, I, I feel like I spent money too quickly. I gave myself too, too decent of a salary. Um, I, I hired and, and, and um, planned for too many staff right off the bat. Um, and and I wanted the place to be impressive right at the beginning, so that's why I did those things. But at the same time, I should have realized that I wasn't a games workshop store. I wasn't in a mall. I didn't need as much staff on as 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 I did as I had coming in. Um, I spent the money on the inventory wasn't particularly well planned out. Um, like I, it made sense to me at the time, but but when I was picking out board games, I, I bought a lot of board games I didn't know, and I just like two of those, two of those, two of those, and there's just two everywhere because that would look nice on the wall. Yeah. Turns out you don't really need to get two copies of every board game, especially the the sort of fringe ones. So I had a lot of games that sat on the wall for a year and never got sold mm-hmm. um, right off the bat. So so things like that were just it wasn't quite as well planned. Um, and then we had a similar move happen um, when almost three years ago, we moved to a bigger location. It, we, the, the plaza had a large space open up. We decided it was time to move cause, cause our tournaments were getting really full. I didn't have much more room for a new product and, and things were going really well. So, um, so three years ago we opened up two doors down in the same plaza. Um, and it's a much nicer space. It's way more open. I think everybody that walks in realizes instantly it's a nicer place to be. Um, but we definitely went way over budget on, on that move. Um, and, and so that was, has also been something that we've been dealing with ever since is, is we ended up having to get more, um, you know, more loans, took on more debt, more than we expected, right? We had a budget and we, we more than doubled the budget with, with Oof. what we had spending. So yeah, for sure. That's, that's not good. And it's the kind of thing too, where, you know, it was my first time dealing with a contractor. It was my first time doing some other things. And it's, it's a lot like the first time you open your business, you think you know what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden that's an extra $10,000 here and it's extra $3,000 there. And it just adds up. And when you're doing something like this, you're thinking to yourself, this is my space. This is what I want it to be like. And when the contractor comes to you and says, do you want the cheap carpet or the good carpet? Yeah. You, you don't go for the cheap carpet. You're going for lasting. You're going for, for doing it right the first time. I didn't want to just be buying new stuff a month later or a year later. I wanted to do it all right the first time. So it, it always made sense in my mind to go with the more expensive option or the better option. But it just ended up adding up and adding up and adding up. Eventually, it's like, oh, yeah, we forgot about that thing, too. I guess we better get one of those. And and uh, just a lot of that, that kind of stuff would happen. And And overall, we ended up going way over budget on the move. So we've been paying back that debt ever since, which has been a bit of a struggle. Um, you know, every, any time you take on extra debt, like at the beginning of your business, but then also if you do a big move like this, that's, that's a big, um, a big thing. So if I'd planned that out better, if I'd spent the money smarter right at the beginning of my opening the store and right at the beginning of, of, uh, moving, those are probably the two biggest mistakes that I made. Fair answer. And it's kind of funny cause yeah, like you said, those are two very similar situations different yeah, but similar for sure you'd think you'd learn the first time maybe i should have but <laughs> <laughs> it felt different i felt like i knew what i was talking about again and and well, i didn't i you know not enough anyway maybe that's the reason that the the second time also kind of had the same difficulties is that you know you had the experience and then like it felt different enough that like okay i've got this mm-hmm. what's basically a false sense of security right like i've got this i got it and then all kinds of new things popped up out of you yeah. And not just that, but I mean, we're moving to a bigger space that came with it, not just 
the cost of of setting up the space but that comes with a bigger rent that comes with probably mm-hmm. more staff all of a sudden we were able to carry events up to 70 people so well now i'm going to have more staff because we're going to run more events because we're going to do more of this and more of this and more of this and and sales went up but so did expenses right so um so that it it, it definitely was an error to not have planned it a little better or skimped a little bit more here and there. I mean, I love my space. I love my store. I love the way it looks when I walk in the door. But at the same time, it's definitely a reminder of, oh, you probably could have been a little smarter about some of these things. It feels a little extravagant in some places. But it worked out because you had the the cash, basically, right? Yeah. You, you had enough money set aside that you could, you know, endure the bumpy road and then, you know, everything takes off and you're okay. That's the hope. <laughs> still not that, that is the hope. You, like, yeah, you right, hope you yeah. get the right right amount of money. But uh, yeah, okay. Yep. So let's uh, flip that a little bit and uh, talk about the thing that you're most proud of. What's the one, either like the one day or the one action, the one element of your shop that you think is the thing that sets it apart? Um. Well, I, I am proud of the way our space looks. I'm not sure if you've seen any pictures of it online or anything like that, but uh, we do have a nice wide open game space. We've got some really fun decor that looks like a like a medieval town. And, uh, and when you walk in the space, I feel like not just the way it looks, but but the, the feeling that we try and give off is, is that of a comfortable, fun, you know, warm, inviting space. So um, I'd say I'm pretty proud of, of, of that. I'm pretty proud of, of, our, of our events. Um, I feel like... I feel like the staff that we've we've chosen here um, know what they're doing very well. Uh, I've got a couple of guys that I've hired, a couple of people that I've hired that probably were were just some of the best moves I've ever made. Um, so, you know, I'm proud of our staff, and I'm proud of our space, and I'm proud of of, of the t- the kinds of events we run. We try and develop, we try and present an experience for our customers when they come in and uh, we might not be the cheapest store in town. Uh, we may not have the most inventory. We may not have a lot of the things that, that other shops have going for them. But I feel like, like as far as inviting spaces go, um, that's, that's something that we that we're really proud of here. Awesome. So how did you find these uh, a star players? How did you uh, hire the right people that you're, you're so proud of? Um, yeah, I, we, we've hired a lot of people over the years, uh, and I've had a bunch of, of, of excellent staff. But there are a couple of moments where you just happen to have the right person at the right time that wants the kind of job you want, and, and they end up being excellent staff that care a lot about the store and and are people you can work with over, for, for years. So um, I think you get lucky a little bit. Uh, but being a store like ours, being, being a game store, one of your biggest assets is the fact that when somebody applies for a job, there's a very good chance you know them quite well already. Um, you know, they've been coming to the store for, for a while now. They play in events. You've seen them when they've lost games. You've seen them at their at their best. You've seen them um, how they deal with an opponent that's that's not being very fun. How they, you know, what kind of stuff they get into. What games they enjoy. Like, you, you can tell a lot about them already just because you know them. I mean, game stores are, are they, they call it like I guess it's your your third place, right? You go home, you go to work, and you go to a special place that you like to hang out with. And for a lot of people, that's a game store. So we are one of those places where you know, you know, it's like Cheers. We know we know yep. your name. It's it's the kind of place you go to. So, um, so because of that, we know a lot of our, our applicants before we ever even hire them. And it's rare that we hire somebody that we don't know very well um, already. Like that's definitely a perk that we've got. So, you know, sometimes you hire based on necessity, but a lot of the time you really can, can take your pick of the litter sort of thing. So, uh, 
so yeah, I mean, it, it didn't take much to find to find good staff. A little bit of luck, you know. There sometimes you find that oh, that person's available, and and you kind of get excited because, you know, you didn't realize they'd want to work at a game store. You didn't realize that they were available, or didn't know that they could could handle that in their current life situation. So, um, so yeah, that's that's sort of lucky, I guess, for for game stores. It's one of the things that we've got over a lot of other businesses. Yeah, I guess you kind of have like a really really extended interview process. Yeah, where you absolutely. could be like you could talk to this person and get to know them for months, months ahead of, before you even possibly introduce them to like the shop and the hiring and the all of that. For sure. Well, and, and you know there is a, a flip side to that though. I mean that's that's the good side of it. There's also the downside where you know some people, you like some people, they're even your friends sometime, and they apply, and and you just know they're not right for it. Uh, you mm-hmm. know that they're not. You know maybe they don't, maybe they don't quite have the right personality. Maybe they just, um, you know rub some people the wrong way or maybe they they aren't the type of person you're looking for the particular position you know i'm looking for a leadership type person and and a really nice sorry really nice guy applies then then what are you going to do right uh other than try and be respectful um so so yeah that's sorry i'm just trying to turn the volume down Uh, there we go so uh yeah that's 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 part of it too is that sometimes you have people apply that they think that they're they're big important customers and they are and they're right about that but at the same time they're not actually the right person for the job and now you've got to explain that to them or or decide how you're going to deal with that so it does come with two two sides of the coin yeah for sure i guess you don't want to lose customers by telling them that you don't want them working for your shop but right yeah that's that's dangerous absolutely yep that's a dangerous, dangerous road uh, to be on sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, what uh, qualities do you look for for somebody who's like, who's your top end? Um, someone that's enthusiastic is always one of the very first things. Uh, I don't need you to be an expert in the games we sell, um, but if you're super excited about them, that's good. Like you, you'll be able to to gain that knowledge of the game. But it's hard to it's hard to teach enthusiasm. You can't really teach enthusiasm. For sure. So, so if you can find someone that's really excited, um, the kind of person that can um, translate, like enthusiasm is contagious. So if you have a customer and when you walk in, you know, when, when you're a customer and you walk into a shop and the, the person that's working there is just friendly and excited and can't wait to show you the next neat thing that came out and feels genuine, then you're much more likely to, to get excited about the same things. Uh, if you walk in and they seem kind of dis, you know, dismissive or, or they seem uninterested, that's going to definitely translate to your experience. So enthusiasm is a big one. Um, someone that's, that's community-driven, someone that really wants to, uh, to help grow a community. We actually have a program at our store called Standard Bears, and that's basically sort of an official way to give some customers a little bit of... Um, control over over a community and so so the way that works is uh it's a volunteer that wants to run events for a specific game or or help run run tournaments or give us ideas on things we can do and and we give them a little bit of um a little bit of uh, you know power in, in that sense and that they get to come and ask or request to run events or they they get to judge them or or things like that and so in standard bears we look for the same thing someone's really going to um to try and grow a community that's not looking so much for a big reward, but just wants to be there to help new co- new players out, help new people get into the the thing, and to run great events. And so, you know, we look for the same thing in, in, in staff. And a lot of times, staff will hire eventually from Standard Bears because they share share qualities that we care for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That, that's a pretty good program to have, actually. Yeah, I mean, a lot of stores have volunteers to help run their magic events or help run their board games or help run Warhammer or something like that. But uh, what we did was we just tried to make it sort of an official title which which i think customers yeah. 
that get it like because oh I'm I'm a standard bearer I'm a little I've been given a little bit of an official scepter to to lead the way for this thing and and then it gives gives me a chance to uh talk to them about things they can recommend products they can tell me what their customer base is thinking of because like i said at the beginning at the very beginning when i opened i was an expert in what we sold i was a warhammer guy i knew pretty good um pretty much about magic i'm a big board game guy as well but as we grew we've we've now sell so many different miniature games and card games and things like that that there's no way that i'm the expert on everything anymore so at some point you have to find people that can do that and that can be your voice in the community right if, if my standard bearer comes back and says hey the, the players don't seem to really like the type of events we're running well, now I've got that information uh, that's been brought to me, and they can suggest what the players are saying, because I don't necessarily have my ear to the ground of that specific community as well as a standard bear will. Mm. That's a nice, uh, another nice little advantage of the whole thing, is that uh, yeah. they provide a centralized source of feedback for what everyone is really talking about. For sure. Cool. Yeah. Good tip. Good tip. Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. Hmm. Okay, so you've been open for... Eight years at this point. Going yeah. on nine, actually, right? Going on nine in June, yep. Okay, so uh, you were pretty established. What's your strategy for bringing in new customers? Well, um, I haven't done as much marketing uh, as I probably should. We've started to, to dabble a little bit in that kind of stuff. Um, we've done some wag-jag kind of things and, and uh, uh, you know, some Facebook and Google advertising and things like that as far as or marketing goes, but we haven't done a lot of that, and that's something I'd like to get into more at some point. Um, but obviously, a big part of of a game store is is delivering on that that experience. And I mean, people use the word um, word of mouth all the time, and that's mm. sort of an easy cop out, like, oh, we just rely on word of mouth. But when you're talking about a game store, what you really want is you want to be um, you want to be developing a, a, a you know. A situation where the customers that come in are having great experiences and then they're bringing their friends for the next time and then it's more than just word of mouth you're, you're bringing the person back with you so having uh great events that that you know have that are that are clear and are, are fair and are in a comfortable space and have fun prizes and have excited staff and things like that that's going to get you to bring your friends back and then you also want to have some means of, of actually incentivizing customers to come back as well because with gamers you're not really just dealing with one person like you are in a lot of other businesses when you're talking about trying to sell someone a shirt you're looking for for a customer acquisition of, of, of a person to buy that shirt with gaming i feel like it's always more that you're trying to get a person who's then going to bring their gamers with them, their group, their their friends that all play with them. Because gamers don't play alone most of the time. Gamers have friends, they have groups, um, and well, if you games can, are naturally two player or higher, right? Precisely. So if you can attract a person from a group, and that person holds some sway within that group, and that mm. person's really excited about your shop, and which magic event are we going to? Oh, I really want to go to Black Knight Games. Okay, let's all go to Black Knight Games. Now you've got a few people from that one person's experience, right? And the other thing we like to do is we do try and have some customer incentives to, to draw people back. So we have uh, a membership program here where you get discounts on snacks and drinks. You get discounts on events or other promotions for events. Uh, you, you earn points when you buy stuff here. Members earn even more points, and that turns into free money back. We give out a lot of customer credit um, as far as uh, rewards go for tournaments and things like that. Now, a lot of stores, I've found, don't like to give credit that can be used on events because it's sort of a cyclical thing and they never see money again. We do allow customers to use their credit to, to, to buy into an event. Like if you win a magic 
a Friday Night Magic event, you might earn credit, and then you can, you know, come back and play the next week for free. Um, and the thing, the reason why we allow that is because if you have a group of friends and you're trying to decide where to go for your FNM, and Black Knight Games has some of my credits sitting there, so I can play for free. I'm going to convince my friends to go back to Black Knight Games with me because I can play for free. Um, so, so we allow um, we allow credit to be used for events as well as singles and whatever you want, um, which which helps people as well. And then we also have uh, for Magic a, a sort of a, a drawback system called Heroes Reward, and we made these cute little Magic card looking uh, business cards that mm. that are basically worth a point, and you can trade them in for a bunch of different things. Like if you trade two in for a booster pack, or you can trade um, three in to play in a standard event or you can trade play buy a buy in for a sealed event for nine or or you can get from a pull box or enter a draw for a booster like we have a bunch of different prizes that you can get from these things and so people end up collecting them over over the course of time so if i've got a bunch of heroes rewards or i know that i just need a couple more to get that fat pack i want then i might convince my friends that that that's the store to go to that that night so we end up uh, having a lot of success with with it comes to um when it comes to attendance for events, for Magic especially, but uh, for others as well. Okay, so how, do, how does one acquire Hero Awards? There are a couple different ways. Um, you get them for every single booster draft you do. Uh, you get one. Um, you can get them for going uh, to pre-release sealed deck tournaments. Basically, if it's, a, if it's a sealed product tournament, you're probably getting one. Um, in addition, for non-sealed um, events, we have a fun kind of callback system as well called um, Bounties. And what happens is if you went undefeated the previous week at one of our events, whether it was our Wednesday Night Modern, our Friday Night Magic Standard or Draft, or our Saturday Night Legacy, um, then we throw your name up on this big bounty board that we stick on Facebook and we stick up on our, our TVs and, and stuff in the store so people know that you were one of the undefeated players. Then the first person to beat you at that event next week earns a hero's reward. And if nobody can, then you earn one. Um, mm. And if, if you don't show up, then we still give it out randomly for free. So we, we do some random ones as well. But people end up uh, getting a decent amount of hero's rewards, but they still have some value because not, we're not just throwing them out there. And, and it's a fun thing where, oh, I won last week. I better come back next week to defend my title. That's another one of the callback kind of systems we have for events. Nice. You have a pretty nice uh, little incentive system set up. Yeah, I can you know, see why your players are keep coming back. Yeah, and uh, I think that's important, right? And and like we said, you're, you're talking about customer acquisition. We don't do a lot of our marketing or advertising, so when we get a customer, we want to make sure that we're able to keep them and hopefully that they're they're bringing friends with them. Yeah, for sure. So primarily events based. That's that's what I'm getting from this. Is um, yeah, yeah. We should do more marketing, more traditional marketing. That's probably something we should do. Um, it's just not something we've done a lot of yet. Okay, that's fair. You know, what's something you struggled with during the early days of your business, and then how about now? Um, early on, I think. Let me think. Um, we talked already a little bit about sort of the financial side of things, so maybe something else. I think early on, not really knowing how to run um, a great magic event was actually something that we struggled with. Hmm. Um, I'd run a lot of Warhammer events and things like that, so I had a really good idea of how that would how that would go. Uh, and in the beginning. I was a casual Magic player. I never really played very competitively. Um, from a young age, I, I played, you know, from, since I was 10, I've been playing, but I never really played a lot of tournaments or understood the sort of competitive side of it. And Warhammer is typically not as competitive a game. You play in tournaments mm -hmm. and stuff, but there's always prizes for sportsmanship and painting. And it's a lot more about kind of a fun, just, just casual play experience. And when Magic started uh, you know, becoming bigger in my shop, 
it, you know, there's obviously a very competitive side to magic, and it wasn't something I had really understood. And, uh, and in fact, sometimes it, it bothered me. The first time someone said they wanted to drop out of the tournament, I was just I just couldn't believe it. I was like, what? Why would you drop? Like, don't you realize someone's not going to get to play now? Like, what are you doing? This is such a jerky move. And then bit by bit, I realized that, oh, no, this is I mean, there's so many different magic events that dropping isn't a big deal. People don't typically mind buys because a round is only 50 minutes anyway. And Warhammer around is like two hours. If you yeah. if you drop from a Warhammer tournament, a guy's got to sit there by himself for two hours. That would just be terrible. Right. But um, in magic, it's part of the it's part of the, the structure of how everything works. People are used to it. It's just kind of the way that, that it, it happens. So um, in the early going, I didn't really get why the competitive side was important with Magic and, and how to cater to that. And I thought to myself, well, if, if all these other stores want to be competitive, we're going to be the nice, fun, casual store. And so I tried to kind of almost drum that up a lot. Yeah. And and uh, as a result, it was a while before we even ran F&M's. Um, mm. because I thought that was too competitive, you know, I thought, which is just okay. a silly, silly mistake. I think, I think we didn't have FNM <laughs> until I'd been open for maybe eight months. Uh, and then we just, we had gaming on, on nights, but it wasn't on Friday and it was just kind of casual pickup games. And it was, you know, I'd give out a booster pack just randomly to someone and that was kind of it. Um, but bit by bit, it became obvious that, that I was not right about that. And we started to run more, ca- more competitive events and I still tried to appeal to the casual guys i didn't want to alienate casual players but uh bit by bit we started running f&ms and then we started running higher level events and you know now we now we try and do all of it we still have a casual night st- on monday but but for sure magic players they crave that structure mostly right they like what they're they're used to as well so um so it took me a little while to realize that maybe i don't know better than <laughs> the magic players of my community so it uh that was something we struggled with earlier on um and then now um Something that we struggled with a lot recently has been um, the, the change in the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been something we've really been dealing with recently. And, and, and where that pertains to magic is that it's, it's been a, a drastic change, right? Like it wasn't long ago that we were almost at par with the U.S. And, and now we're, we're up at like 1.3. We were up at 1.34 at one, one point. Yeah. Uh, and that's a huge, huge change. And it was fairly quick too. So uh, it took a long time for people to realize really that that change was affecting us. And, you know, a booster box for, for us to buy at cost went up a crazy amount because not only was, was the exchange rate affecting it, but also the distributors are trying to get ahead of the exchange rate because it just kept rising. So they were almost rising it preemptively to, to help cover that. So it wasn't long before I realized that our magic events weren't even making any money. Um, and a lot of the stuff in the store, the prices had to change and things like that. So that's something we've been dealing with. We still have inventory in the walls that are priced based off of the old, you know, prices from a year or two ago. And, and I still need to change that because there are some things in our store where we're basically making no money off of it because of, of, uh, the price changes. We just have so much inventory. It takes a while to get through it all. Um, so that was tricky. And then also being, one of the bigger stores in the area, we were one of the first to try to start raising our prices a little bit on magic. We changed our price of booster packs from $4 to $5. No one had really done that in the area yet. So that was pretty nerve wracking. Magic mm-hmm. players were so used to $4 packs. Um, an MSRP on a booster pack is $4 American, but when you do a translation, that's $5 Canadian. So yeah. in fact, more than that. Um, so the, so that was, that's been a little bit tr- tough for us. Um, was was kind of dealing with with that and that's something we're struggling with right now is trying to figure out where our prices should be where where things make sense to do like turns out our booster drafts were actually not making us any money at all um until recently because because the price of packs we were giving out three packs for the players and then a pack and a half in the prize pool and when you add it all it all up it turned out we were making zero dollars on that event and so that's just 
not a place a store can be at and stay in business. So trying to find the right place to be with the dollar changing as quickly as it has been, um, that's been something we've been struggling with. For sure. So how has the community reacted to raising the prices? Um, well, we were very cautious about it. Uh, when we raised our price on packs, I wrote a big article. Uh, I, I, I spread it as far as I could. I put it on Facebook and, and spread it throughout the groups and things like that. And I, I just decided that the way to go, you know, it's it's kind of against the nature of a store to to be overly honest with customers. You know, you don't necessarily want to give up how much things cost. You don't want to give up a lot of those kinds of things. It, it feels natural to kind of try and keep some of that stuff secret. But I figured out over time that with Magic players, they're they're really savvy. They know what um, they know what prices are like at all the stores. They know what co- packs cost roughly to to stores, and and so you you can't you know you can't be too deceptive when it comes to that and i've realized over the years that the best thing to do when it comes especially to magic players and dealing with pricing is just be as honest as you can so um we we wrote this article just trying to be as transparent as possible explaining how things have changed talking about about all of that talking about why we've made the change now realizing you know admitting that probably there'll be a a while here well where people want to buy elsewhere because elsewhere will still be cheaper until they eventually probably catch up to, to what we've already concluded um so that really helped. I got a lot of compliments on the way we handled it. We got a lot of uh, people saying, I, I respect that. Some people stopped buying for a period of time, probably because they could still get it cheaper elsewhere. And I, I totally understand that. But at the same time, we sold, um, we, we did the change on booster packs just before the, uh, the final set in the, in the Tarkir block came out. And and our sales on booster boxes were was half of what it was before, which is a big, big drop, obviously. Yeah. But we made three times more money on that half than Hmm. we had been, right? So that tells you we were making almost nothing off of boosters until all of a sudden we raised our price to something reasonable and and suddenly, even though we were selling less, we were making more money, um, which tells you how little we were making initially. So, um, you know, it it affected us slightly, but but people caught on pretty quick. And other stores, I think, were relieved when we made an announcement like that because they were able to then follow suit eventually and not look like they were the, you know, it's not them walking into treacherous waters. It's, their, it's them following the lead and, and other customers are kind of used to it by that point. And so eventually other stores kind of caught up as well to, to, to those those changes. And then recently we changed our price on, on events to follow suit with that and uh, did the same thing. We wrote an article explaining why we were doing it, what the changes would be, and and our events really haven't been affected attendance wise. So, um, it's all been positive. The the customers, if you're honest with them, they they'll understand. They'll ask you questions, and if you answer them honestly, then then they'll 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 be happy. If if they get, if they feel like you're hiding something, they feel like you're maybe trying to do it for a selfish reason or or, or something like that. Then that's when I think you get in trouble. But when it comes to to, to customers and ha- having to raise prices. In an awkward kind of setting like that, I think the thing to do is is just be as as open and transparent as possible. Yeah, I would have to agree. I think I think honesty is probably what saved you in this situation. That if you just sure. decided like I'm just gonna raise the you know raise the price of packs one day, and people came in and saw that hmm, everything's more expensive, they would be probably first like confused, and then there'd probably be outrage, basically being like, oh, this is so expensive. But when you explain exactly the gouging, the the fat packs that uh, that that just reminds me of the the battle for Zendikar fat packs that people were complaining about when they were going for like eighty dollars because nobody could get a hand, get their hands on one. Sure, yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. Like gouging, like, come on. 
Well, that's that's just that's just supply and demand. That's that's what that is. Actually, yeah. we ended up selling ours for a lot cheaper than everyone else was. I think everyone else realized before we did that that those were more <laughs> more rare than that. And I think we'd already basically sold through our entire allotment by the time we realized how rare they were going to be. And uh, so we were a little bit late on the wagon on that one. We probably could have gotten, like you said, $80, $80 or something for them. But we ended up selling ours for a lot cheaper um, just because they got pre-sold way early. Because customers, in this case, were quicker than I was on it. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. No. And I no. mean, we, we got our, our margin on it. We It's, it's yeah. fine. Every once in a while, there is an item that comes out that a store is able to sell for a little bit more because there's such a high demand for it. And, and I mean... It feels it feels a little bit shady to some people. Sometimes even the store owner feels like they're being a little bit shady about that. But I honestly think that if if you have something that's super limited, it's it's no different than any other collectible, right? Like the yeah. the price, the uh, wizards might set a price an MSRP on it, but if they're only given ten to a store, that's not the price you're going to see. That's just not realistic. Uh, if the store knows what they're doing anyway, um, and those opportunities don't come very often, so stores make so little margin most of the time on magic that those kind of things help equalize a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that I always kind of, I was kind of confused by. It's the the examples like a from the vault product. Sure. Right. Yeah. Where like you know, there's just not that many of them, but people really, or at least a fair number of magic players, really like these things. Like yeah. uh, from the Vault Angels or something, people are really, really into that. And if you get, uh, you know, three, five, ten, whatever, like you get the very limited number. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, it's it feels really strange for Magic players to expect the store to be. A, I'm going to sell it at the MSRP and make right. not not a ton of money. When you really realistically supply demand, you can. You know, there's only so many of them. It's very finite. You could sell them for much higher. And the right. person who's buying them is probably happy to buy them. And the, and that's absolutely true. And and a lot of the times, too, if you price it at what you know you can get for it, they don't sell as fast, which means the people that really, really want them, they're able to typically find them at that point. You know, they might be a few days later, like, do you have one? And we're like, yeah. And they're just relieved that it's even available, right, at that point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, w- w- when you have an item that the store could crack open and sell the contents for more than the MSRP, mm-hmm. like significantly more. I think it's silly to expect the store to sell it at MSRP. Um, Absolutely. Now that being said, it's still, it's still honestly in that situation. What I would like to see is Wizards just not even issue an MSRP. You know, give yeah. it a cost and just say this is what you're getting stores, and then have the stores dictate it themselves. Because, because like you said, it it does make it look sometimes to people like that's a bit shady. Uh, and and as a store owner, I don't really want to ever have it feel like I'm gouging people. Um, but at the same time, if I've got three of these things and I know that someone's willing to pay me 200 bucks for them, like, okay, I'll sell it for 40 Like, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, so. I feel like personally, the people who are complaining about this are probably a very vocal minority. Like, I don't feel like every Magic player is like, oh man, the stores are gouging you on the from the vaults on the on your fat packs or whatever. I think it's probably like a tiny, tiny fraction of the the population is outraged that they can't buy like 20 of these for sure. a very cheap cost and they'll go to Reddit and they'll complain about it. And it just, it sort of seems like everyone's sort of upset about it. Right. That makes it just, sense. It's yeah. It's still frustrating to read when someone's like, Oh, why can't I get my fat packs for, you know, $10 each? I want, that's what I want to pay for them. Like, well, yep. that's not the way <laughs> business works. Sorry. Absolutely not. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, just one of the things you have to deal with. Yeah, I think for the most part, people understand, though. And and we just, yeah. you know, we try not to be the most expensive. We try not to just go crazy on things. But we, we do realize at this point 
um, in our business that that you got to sell what you can get get for things. Uh, and and a lot of the time that means you're taking less margin than you would like. Um, and so that means that occasionally when you're able to take a little more margin than usual, that's that's a, a good thing for a store is to be able to get a little bit extra from that thing. It's what helps keep the door open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You definitely have to take advantage of it when you can. All right. So two more questions. Sure. Let's do that since uh, you're now open. Don't want to take up all your time today. But uh, so some, there's one that I ask everybody. But before we get to that, I want to say uh, if you had to start over from scratch, like if you were you didn't have the shop right now and you really wanted to, to do Black Knight games today, what would you do differently? Um, I'd be more cautious with inventory and spending at the very beginning. Uh, I would be a lot smarter with um, with how taxes work. <laughs> I mm. think that uh, it surprised me in my first year when, when the government was like, well, this is how much you owe us in tax at the end of the year. And I just I couldn't believe it. It was just a monstrously high amount to me. But it, did, made totally, it made total sense when you started to think about, well, you've had this many sales and you charged HST on every single one of them. And, you know, like it, it made sense when you really kind of came down to it. But a smart business from scratch, I think, should be putting away what they expect to pay every single month in like a savings account, just so it's just not even a problem. Um, so just just smarter smarter spending. Um, I think that we did a lot of things right at the beginning. I think I, I found good people at the beginning. I think that we, um, you know, ran ran some good good events at the beginning and and had a pretty good variety of of, of stuff to sell. So overall, I think that we we did a lot of things right, but definitely when it came to Initial spending, I think that that's something that that I would have been a little more cautious with. I would have been a little bit slower in my inventory. Instead of trying to just have a huge inventory right off the bat, I probably would have spent a little bit less, and um, and then have room to grow. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. like three months in, deciding that okay, now I'm going to bring this in. But right off the bat, I decided, for example, that a kids section was really important. So I had all these kids board games and you know little toy things and stuff like that. And overall, that just wasn't something that ever took off for us. And eventually, we sold a lot of it off. And and if I'd had a smaller section to begin with, we might have come to the same realization, and I wouldn't have had as much committed to that. And I would have had also extra money lying around that I could have put into something that was doing really well. I could have grown our miniature yeah. gaming rich or or expanded our magic selection or things like that uh it took us a while to get into singles in a serious way um at at the very beginning i kind of looked at magic singles as a bit of an annoyance because they take a lot of time for sure Uh, and uh you know the people come in they want to look at a million binders and they walk away with eight dollars and stuff and you're just like oh what was that what was that for (laughs) yeah um but i think that my honest opinion at this point is that singles is the place where you can actually make money as a business in magic um and that the events you don't make a lot of money no matter how many people come um, because they just they expect a little a little too much out of the value, and then um, the sealed packs. Even while we raised our prices, it's still the worst margin in the store. Um, like we still make less money per dollar spent on magic than we do on anything else in the store. So um, I feel like singles is the place where where if you're really smart and put a lot of effort into it, that you can actually make some money because people trade for singles. They trade and the, the singles collection kind of grows itself. It almost replenishes itself if you're doing it right. So. Um, for sure, I think I would try and do a better job of that right from the beginning. Um, yeah, buy people's collections from the beginning. You know, I just kind of threw my own collection in this, in this, in this into the window and expected that, that was enough, and it really probably wasn't even close to enough. So at the very beginning. Okay. So is there anything uh, anything different about the community? You know, eight years later, that uh, 
would change how you would start up the shop? Um, yeah, I mean, I already mentioned a little bit these that the fact that Magic players enjoy a little more competitive flair than a lot mm -hmm. of other communities, and so catering to that right off the bat would be important. Like I said, with the singles, that's sort of part of it. Um, at the very beginning, Magic players I don't think took us very seriously as a shop. We were like a nice place to hang out and play some games, but we weren't we weren't a real magic shop to a lot of players in the beginning. So that's something that, that I would try and try and cater to magic is, is our biggest game right now in this, in the store. Um, we have by far the most people to play it and, uh, it, it, it makes us the most in sales. It's not the most profitable, but it makes us the most in sales. Um, so, so realizing that that community is as important as it is, I think would have been a big change from how we handled things off the bat. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. And then, uh, for the final question, it's a question I pretty much ask every single person who's on the show, and it's a little more philosophical. It's not <laughs> okay. not as technical, and sure. it's basically just a what does success look like to you? Like what does a what does a, a successful Black Knight Games mean? Because everyone's got a different definition of what they want out of the shop when they you know open it up, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. What does it mean to you? Um, so a successful Black Knight Games to me is sort of I guess. There's a couple things there. Mm. As far as the store itself being a success, it, it has to be something that at, at some point is just, it's in the mind of gamers in the area. Um, I want it just to be so established and so um, kind of almost commonplace to come visit if you're a gamer that it's just, it's just part of a lot of gamers' daily routines. It's something that when you think of gaming in Hamilton, you automatically associate it with my shop. I think that is is a pretty good indicator of, of what success would be like Um for me just just that we've been around for a while that we know what we're doing we're just you know gaming in, in hamilton is black knight games like I, I think that that is something i'd like to have in people's minds and i think we're, we're there with some people but maybe not with everyone yet um so i, I feel like that is is definitely something I, I don't think we need to have some huge chain of stores i don't think we need to have um you know a certain sales goal or a certain number of events or attendance or anything like that but if you if 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 you start to feel that you, and you're a gamer in Hamilton that gaming and black knight games are ubiquitous in Hamilton then then that's that's i think success as far as the store goes as far as my own personal goal if if i can get it to the spot where where it's something that i can pass down to my kids mm -hmm. that would feel like a success to me that's a good answer thank you yeah no and everyone's got a different take on it so I always find it really interesting to see where, what people's goals are, and what they want with the business. Because I think I feel like what we talked about really early on is that uh, most people who end up owning a game store are gamers first, not business people first. It's true. Yeah. And like they don't, I feel like they don't necessarily have a uh, you know a ten year kind of like this is where I want to be. This is like a, a definite goal or an objective for their shop. They kind of just like oh, I just want a game store and then see how it goes. It's true. And you know, that's not even something that's just true of game stores themselves. It's kind of the whole entire game industry because games are something that draw you in, you know, gamers make games, gamers sell games, mm -hmm. gamers make distribution companies, like everything from, from the very bottom to the very top in the games industry is done by gamers. Um, and that's actually a bit of a problem with our industry in some ways, because, you know, we don't have the right, the correct business practices. A lot of stores don't know what they're doing right off the bat. I still don't know what I'm doing half the time. And, you know, distributors don't quite understand how to do proper distribution and, and the, the manufacturers don't quite have, have it all together. And so as a result, it's, it's not as 
I guess we expect a little bit less or, or we're just used to it at some point in the game industry. Um, but there, there are certainly some practices that, that we could we could improve upon in the entire industry as a whole. And that's because, like you said, we, we start off all just being gamers. We're not, we're not business people first. And while that can be annoying sometimes, sometimes it means that certain parts of the industry are flawed or don't quite, you know, we can't quite come up with, um, we don't have product coming in as quickly as we should or we don't have delivery goals met or we don't have a lot of the things that a, a, a more organized business centric business does but at the same time there's just such character in the in the industry and you end up with with wonderful spaces uh run by wonderful people and products that are just you know made by gamers for gamers and and so you know while a flaw in the industry is that we all have maybe a little less experience maybe a little bit less um ability uh certainly i think that's at least balanced out by by the passion and the love we all have for the industry itself yeah no i agree <laughs> it may not be a uh like the most efficient machine that it could be that you right. know, other industries have you know figured out and all that but it definitely has like you said the passion like no one really cares about their widgets necessarily, but when you're shipping board games and RPGs and or you're creating them or you're selling them, there's you don't have the same kind of uh, you know same kind of experience that other other businesses. They just don't have the same thing that a game store has. And I personally right. think it's it's one of the it's, it's one of the best businesses you can run. It's just my like not for my uh, necessarily I'm going to be rich position, no. but <laughs> from like a I'm happy with my life and I really enjoy what I'm doing position, I think it's great. It's it's a satisfying business for sure. I mean, they say that the best way to make a million bucks in the game industry is to start with two million. So that's <laughs> it's it's not it's not the place to make your money, right? But it's it's a yeah, job yeah. That, that you get to like I get to come to work and I get to be happy. And that's that's something that's that's worth it for me. Yeah, personally I would I would trade that for virtually any amount of money. Yeah. Almost anyways. <laughs> almost. Yeah, I agree. And on that note, I think uh I think this, this is a good time to wrap up. I think okay, we uh, thank you very had much. a great conversation. Uh, if the listeners want to come visit you and, or ch- come check you out online, where do they do that? That's uh, blackknightgames.ca. We also have a Facebook page. Black Knight Games on Facebook? Easy? Yep. Okay. Yep, easy to find. And uh, address in real life? One more time. Uh, eight, 868 Mohawk Road East, Hamilton, Ontario. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you, Jay, for coming on the show. Thank I you really much. appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Me too. I'll uh, I'll let you get back to running your shop. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, have a great day. Cheers. Bye. All right, thanks again, Jay, for coming on the show. You did a great job. If you're a gamer in Hamilton, Ontario, I think you're in great hands over at Black Knight Games. If you want more info on game store entrepreneurship, head over to maniversesaga.com and check out some past episodes of the Maniverse podcast. The Maniverse Podcast is supported by listeners like you. You should totally become a patron of the show and go to patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And if you like what I'm doing, become a patron of the show and show me some love. And for those who do actually listen to the uh, end of the show, I know I don't tend to, so if you're still here, uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And as always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.
Are you still here? Just wanted to see how long the outro music is? I get it, it's a pretty sweet tune. It's from one of my favorite Super Nintendo games of all time. You looking for a shout-out in next week's episode? Shoot me an email and tell me what your favorite game is. Tom at ManiverseSaga.com. Latest.